This is the Pain Information Network. Special guest, Dr. David Hanscom, Southern Pain Society's annual meeting keynote speaker. This is a good one. Well, welcome back, everybody. I uh, have the pleasure and distinct honor of uh, joining Dr. David Hanscom from clear across the country. He's in uh, Washington State, and uh, he was kind enough to give us some of his time and tremendous insights into understanding pain and not pain for pain's sake pain from a surgical standpoint from a personal standpoint and from a redemption standpoint this is one of those episodes that i think touches everybody go go to his website back in control uh buy his book back in control very interesting i immediately connected with him at the meeting, uh, we both spoke there, and he was our keynote. And I realized this is exactly, <laughs> in a little different words, but exactly the way I think about pain, chronic pain, uh, coming to terms with it, and just going to a better place. You've heard me talk over the past year about the five rules, benchmarks. You've heard me talk about just getting things started, getting things going in your personal life, finding a way. And his website is very insightful. For example, taking back control, the five stages. Stage one, address anxiety. Situational depression anxiety is always present with chronic pain, and we ignore it. And as a physician, I know I undertreat it, but I'm not, I don't want to use benzodiazepines. We get that. I want to find ways to treat it. Um, sometimes we can do it holistically, organically. Sometimes we need a little help with medications. But stage one is absolutely mandatory. And we're going to weave a little bit of that into this very difficult subject about suicide. And he's absolutely correct. Suicide is not depression. It's anger. Who gets angry? (laughs) Well, that's stage two, chronic pain patients. When you feel like he says trapped, and that's true, your day is in and out around what you can and can't do, and you take on that unfortunate model of, um, I don't think I can do it, I I better not try to do it, and you start isolating yourself. And social isolation is a huge problem in pain uh, control. It's part of our our foremost strategy to get people moving get them up socialize them however you have to do it go to the mall go to the ymca but do something to stage three reactive to creative you know be creative express yourself he has this thing called expressive writing uh really he's right (laughs) expressive writing can put something on paper or have you look at yourself outside in um and really understand the, the key things um, about a, a, a forefront of his baseline philosophy, and that's forgiveness. That's to stage four, take back your life. How are you going to take back your life if you're angry and you're always a victim? No, no, no. It's forgiveness. It's understanding that you are not an isolated island. You are somebody that can be helped, that can be put into a circuit of wholeness, Something that just makes sense for not only you, but your family. And he talks about triggers, the family triggers, the family that embraces your pain 
and uh, disables as opposed to enabling. Very important. Stage five, leave a rich, full life. How hard is that? Well, I don't know. I think that all of us have to reflect. We aren't on our deathbed looking backwards in the rearview mirror at, at what we've had in our life and what we haven't had, what were our goals. No, no. We always look forward. And we look forward within the context of we can do better. And we can do better in small steps. No grand leap, a small step. And finally, he talks a little bit about physician burnout. Boy, uh, that is true. You know, when the model exists of uh, American medicine to get into a room, get the answers, and get out to the next room so that you can remain efficient, so that you can basically stay in business, we are forgetting. We are forgetting to relax and, and have time to talk to patients he talks a little bit about that as well. And I, I've got to tell you, he's going to talk a little bit about his wife and the cup song. So I'm going to, I'm going to figure that one out, but it's a, he calls it a laugh relax. And uh, he puts on a little seminar uh, as well, and I'm going to find out more about that because it sounds like uh, an event that many people would want to attend. And it's just uh, so thoughtful, and this episode is so important for those that suffer from chronic pain. So here I have before you... A surgeon, uh, a incredibly important surgeon, he's renowned, and he talks about groundbreaking approaches to dealing with pain. Surgeons don't want to talk about pain. They want to operate. Now, his philosophy, which is disruptive but is right, is surgery isn't the best answer for a lot of people, particularly low back pain. He quit operating on low back pain a long time ago. Wise man. Now, that's not to say there aren't certain surgical corrections we have to do to the spine. We're not saying that, but what are we talking about the five rules? Diagnosis, okay? And um, then put that in the context, do you believe the diagnosis? Do you know how to treat the diagnosis? And then finally, rule five, from a compassion standpoint, I want to relieve your pain, but more importantly, I want to improve your function. And as he puts it, leave a rich, full life. Let's get back in control with this episode. Don't live in pain, as he says. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. Today I have Dr. David Hanscom on the phone. And I got to tell you, this is a very, very special uh, podcast today. I heard David talk about uh, some incredible topics that we don't talk about. We just don't talk about physician suicide, and we don't talk enough to our patients. We don't talk about neurobiology. Uh, you've heard me talk about it on the podcast before, but I, we were on the same page, and it, it, just, it just had to happen. He had to come on the podcast, and it's a real pleasure to have him all the way from the West Coast. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. I'm very excited about uh, being on your podcast, and I love your presentation on physician suicide down in New Orleans. And uh, I'm a I'm a spine surgeon. I'm an orthopedic surgeon trained in spine. I started practicing complex spine surgery 30 years ago. This is my 30th year. And my role is spinal deformity, reduce cervical, thoracic, lumbar. And so the stuff I do is extremely complex stuff. Because I was an extremely aggressive surgeon, I felt surgery was a definitive answer for 
And I actually felt guilty if I didn't offer somebody surgery. That's why I was trained. Then in 1993, the data came out that the success rate for a spine fusion for back pain was about 22%. So I quit doing that surgery. And then in the meantime, I descended into a horrible suicidal burnout from around 1988 to 2003. And I didn't know what hit me. I didn't become a major surgeon by having anxiety. And in 1990, all of a sudden, I developed a panic attack driving across the Lake Washington Bridge. And I had no idea what was going on. I actually did not feel anxious. My body, the first symptom of actually having anxiety was these incredible sweats, racing heart, and a full-blown panic attack. Once I started having those things, the next 13 years were absolutely intolerable. And I spiraled down the hole, trying everything in the meantime for 13 years. And in, 2000, in 2002, I was suicidal. And I actually had made the decision to, you know, commit the deed. And in the meantime, I've had 19, maybe 20 medical colleagues now commit suicide, including four medical school classmates, my fellow spine fellow in the spine fellowship. And then about five years ago, one of my best friends in Seattle was assisting me on a case. He shook my hand and said, good case, walked out and shot himself. So he's only about 42 years old when that happened. And unfortunately for me, maybe fortunately for other people, I probably know as much about suicide as anybody I know because I've witnessed it firsthand. I've studied it. I've actually crossed the line myself to start the process. And what happens in with suicide is it's not depression. People think people just give up and it's, it's depression. And suicide is basically anger. Anger is destructive. The ultimate act of destruction is self-destruction. That's why you hear about so many murder-suicides and other acts of violence around suicide, is that it's an angry act. And what I also did not realize at the time is that what drives anger is anxiety. In other words, anxiety is how we survive. If you're hungry or thirsty and need something to eat or drink, you first have a slight vague sensation of needing the need met, then you become a little more anxious but it continues not to be met. Then if it really doesn't continue to be met, then you start, your body kicks in adrenaline and you become angry. So basically, anger is anxiety on adrenaline. And when you are trapped by anxiety, there's actually no limit to your anger. Then again, the ultimate manifestation of anxiety is, uh, is suicide, self-destructive behavior. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why, um, as I presented in New Orleans, uh, we see physicians uh, using substances and being alcohol number one, and it's self-medicating. It's it, We're supposed to be everything to all people all the time, 24-7, and that's humanly impossible. So we put too much right. on ourselves. And I think that's uh, very courageous of you to talk about this. Well, what's ironic, and I'm sort of humbled by this, and I'm not trying to be critical of all doctors, but you know, what gets us into college and into medical school residencies and fellowships is that we drive ourselves way too hard. In other words, we're perfectionists, so we're never good enough. And as you know, if in medicine, making rounds, if you don't know a lab test, et cetera, basically your staff guys just jump on you. And the general culture of medicine is pretty vindictive and pretty negative, very critical, very judgmental. So, of course, you're projecting is psychology 101 is that if you're judgmental of something else, judgmental of somebody else, you're simply, simply projecting your view of yourself onto that person. So medicine, actually, I agree that I had taken on that 
that coat of armor to be everything to everybody. The reality is when I look at my background, and I'll speak just for myself, I was probably less equipped than most people to take everything on. You know, we, we tend to be incredibly tough. We suppress anxiety. And the one thing that actually cranks anxiety right through the ceiling is suppressing it. So we're actually less equipped to take, take everything on than the rest of the world because we're not trained. Not only are we not trained, we don't have the resources to seek mental health help. And when I use the word anxiety in my lectures, the whole room wants to drop through the floor. When I mention the word anxiety to a group of physicians, they just they just don't want to, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. And I was a master of suppressing anxiety to the point that when I was 28 years old, in a first year orthopedic resident, I had a patient come into the ward with an anxiety disorder. I had to go to my textbook of medicine actually look up the word anxiety. I honestly did not know what it meant. So I was so good at suppressing anxiety. I was absolutely fearless. The spine fellowship I went to at that time was probably one of the top three in the world. So I didn't, you know, nothing stopped me. But hmm. you might have read that book called The Body Keeps a Score, is that my body was keeping score. And when it manifested, manifested itself about 10 years later, um, it's it just my whole body exploded with these symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system. It you're, was unbelievable. You're right. We're human. We're human, and we are sometimes the worst at going to seek help. Uh, I'm okay. I, I can handle this. And in the case of substance use disorder uh, amongst uh, providers and physicians, they think they can handle it. And that's Absolutely. the problem with anxiety. We think we can handle it all the way to self-destruction. Yep. Well, I'm, I, well, I'm glad you're still you know, operating with us and uh, tremendous inspiration to, to stand up and to say, you know, uh, we all stand together. We are human beings. We are neurobiologically the same. We're not all wired exactly the same, but it's true about physicians. We are wired to achieve and always overachieve. I, I can't get that out of me. Tell us a little bit more about your book and, and, you know, tell us how to get the book and some of the foundations of your book. Well, I published a book called Back in Control, A Spine Surgeon's Roadmap About a Chronic Pain in 2012. And like I said before, in 2002, I was flat out suicidal. And in 2003, I started coming out of the hole. And it came out of the hole by just doing simple things like getting some better sleep. Um, I had read a book by Dr. Burns called Feeling Good that said to start this expressive writing. So I started to write. And after 15 years of extreme anxiety, 16 different physical symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system, I started to heal within two weeks. And about six months later, when I crossed the fact, when I accepted the fact that I was an angry person beyond words, in fact, I did not think I was angry at all. My label was sort of enlightened, by the way. So again, not only was I suppressing anxiety, I was really in anger. Six months after I addressed that anger issue, my symptoms started to disappear. And that was about 2003, 2004. So I've been relatively symptom three now for 10 or 12 years, and I really am not crippled by anxiety. I really don't have the physical symptoms. Um, I've been able to relax. And in 2006, I started sharing these tools with my patients because up to that point, I actually didn't know what happened. I didn't know how I got into the hole. I didn't know how I came out of the hole. And it really didn't start coming together until about 2011. So what's happened since 2012, I've had a huge insight into my own pain, I've had much more experience with my patients. We're watching hundreds of patients become pain-free. Anxiety drops, pain drops, quality of life improves. So the new book is titled Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. And it's because it applies to any pain, not just back pain. 
So the new book is clear. It has the problem and the solution separated. And it's much more based on neuroscience. One of my friends took it upon himself as a hobby to look up the data supporting my book. And he probably screened 10,000 papers, pulled 1,000 papers. He's probably read 500 of them. I've read probably read a couple hundred of them. So the new book is much, much more based on the neuroscience research, which is stunning, by the way. It turns out that anxiety, by the way, is not a psychological issue. It's simply a chemical response to sensory input. In other words, sound, taste, touch, feel can all be pleasant, which gives you dopamine and oxytocin. Then when you feel relaxed, you're feeling a chemical surge. When you have unpleasant sensations like pain, bright lights, loud sounds, etc., then your body secretes adrenaline and cortisol, then you feel anxiety. What's very interesting in the neuroscience world is that thoughts do the same thing. There's a word called unconstructive repetitive thoughts is the term that they use. And the thoughts have the same effect in the same area of the brain, causing those circuits to light up, the pain circuits to light up. Then the chemical response is pretty much the same, adrenaline and cortisol versus the relaxing reward chemicals. So it turns out, again, that thoughts are sensory input that we create this chemical response, but you cannot escape your thoughts. So you can avoid other physical sensations, which will obviously protect you physically, but human beings have the problem in the frontal lobe of their brain where you have this sensory input that you cannot escape. It appears that this relentless progression of thoughts throughout your lifetime gives you this endless chemical reaction of adrenaline and anxiety, and that's probably the basis of chronic pain is the relentless progression of thoughts. So what the book does, is a website, by the way, called backincontrol.com, which is the action plan of the book. In other words, the book is just a framework. It's not the solution. But once you start engaging in the tools to calm down your nervous system, rewire the nervous system, redirect it, it within three to six months, the vast number of people get much, 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 much better. In contrast, if you use just talk therapy to deal with anxiety slash mental pain versus physical pain, then you're in trouble because the unconscious brain is about a million times stronger than the conscious brain. So talk therapy by itself actually reinforces anxiety slash pain. And so you need these somatic tools in addition to talking to start redirecting your nervous system. Yeah, and we agree on that completely. Uh, I call it PAD, pain, addiction, depression, neurobiologically. These um, these footprints all kind of merge together, and uh, you, you pretty much just nailed it right there. I love the the analogy to adrenaline, and it is true. People that are anxious, and you know, physicians treat a lot of anxious people. Let's face it, people want to be on those benzodiazepines. The, the common theme is they open their notebook and it says, I can't sleep, I'm anxious all the time, I'm fidgety, I have weird habits, and people don't want to be around me. And that just right. isolates them more, and they get they lose their socialization. Right. The, the trouble is if you go back to the original topic of suicide, physician, suicide, etc., you know, it's interesting, but I went through this in a really severe way, is that they tell you to relax, take a vacation, pace yourself. You cannot outrun your thoughts. In other words, when I went through the worst part of my burnout, I had a great practice, beautiful house, beautiful kid. I had it all. And it, I became desperate because I had done everything physically I could do to be, quote, happy. And I was more anxious than I ever had been. So you cannot outrun your mind. And so the I'm not saying that relaxation and good hobbies and stuff like that isn't important. It is. 
but again, you're using conscious means to deal with this unconscious part of the nervous system. So you have to get the diagnosis correct before you can treat it. That's why in medicine right now, the physician burnout rate is right around 50 to 55%. And in neurosurgery, it's around 65% because we are wired and we're not letting it go. So all these things that we're told to relax, et cetera, is simply not effective. That's true. Uh, you can't do it alone. You have to have people help you. You, ha- you have to have tools. And right. those tools and resources aren't always evident. You know, you take Correct. you take your Ferrari to a Ferrari dealership. You are a Ferrari. You know, you right. don't take it to a Chevy dealer. You know, get the right help for the right reasons. Correct. And, and if, you, if you don't, it's just going to be a disaster down the road. And that is critically important. So, all right, tell us, uh, tell us something else that is a passion for you. Well, right now I'm taking these tools. Um, in, in 2006, my, uh, I had been taking some golf lessons since 2003, and my golf instructor was a performance coach in the financial world using athletic performance principles and sales. So my son was an Olympic-level freestyle mogul skier but, but having a lot of trouble, and he had tried a couple of sports psychologists that hadn't worked. So I had pretty much ignoring this golf instructor's advice, and I put two and two together and said, look, you know, my son needs some coaching. So I brought my son, Nick, and his best friend, Holt, to Seattle in 2006. And as I was watching this instructor talk to these guys, I'm going, wait a second, surgery's a performance. And the formula is performance equals skill minus interference. And the interferences are anxiety, frustration, distraction, being rushed, or complacent. And we're taught skills, but we're not necessarily taught performance skills. So what happens is that your goal is consistency of performance. So if you're having a bad day, haven't slept, et cetera, that's going to detract from your performance. So I engaged him as my surgical performance coach in 2006. And within about 18 months, I worked pretty hard at this, uh, my complication rate just dropped to the floor. And so it turned into a situation where I was trying to avoid complications to turn my whole surgical experience into sort of an art form, sculpting, whatever you want to call it, and turn it more like a Japanese tea ceremony where everything was done in beautiful execution, consistent, enjoyable. So instead of being afraid of complications and just getting defrauded without a complication, I was excited about money, just bring it on. I want to perform. So it, it changed my entire surgical performance. We've trained several hundred surgeons in the techniques. And we now train all of our fellows. The same performance coach now teaches. He's a golf instructor, by the way. So I take my fellows to the driving range. He's been in this for about five years now. And it's like grip pressure. It's relaxation. It's washing distractions. And my fellows leave the fellowship with just a fraction of complications I had in my first five years in practice. So it's been a remarkable experience. And we're trying to you know, systematize it within our hospital. Obviously, I love to systematize it nationwide. But that process of just calming down the fellows in the operating room obviously also translates into the same principles in life, stress management in life. Obviously, operating room's a microcosm of that. So it's been a remarkable experience for me to be able to watch these fellows you know, perform at a level that I was not able to perform at their, at their stage of the game. Yeah. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it is neat because I can tell you what I do not ever hear is a physician being a life coach. And we need to be watching each other better and be that life coach for each other. And you're right. Right. Complication rates will drop. I I tell a lot of folks around me, you can't practice in fear. You know, you'll either under-treat, over-treat, you'll make a mistake. 
practice with confidence, but do it in a controlled setting, the right things for the right reasons. Okay, that's great. So you had this retreat you were talking about. Is that uh, something that is just kind of open to physicians, to uh, the public, or it sounded kind of interesting? Well, what happened is that in 2013, based on the whole book, et cetera, we had a chance to put together the concepts in the book into a one-week seminar for a four-and-a-half-day seminar at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. And I had no, no idea what I was doing. I just said, okay, i got four-and-a-half days with these people. I normally have maybe a half an hour in the office at the most with my patients. So I decided to put together a format based on just the things I knew affected chronic pain. I knew one of the biggest problems in chronic pain is being socially isolated. So I wanted my pain patients to sort of start interacting with each other. From Louis Cozzolino's work out of Pepperdine, who's a brilliant uh, psychologist but also knows of neuroscience research beyond description, pointed out that the human brain evolved by interacting with other humans. So I wanted to create a structured environment, one of the antidotes to anxiety is structure, where people could interact with each other. And then I, th- I knew forgiveness was a big part of getting better with pain. And then also new pain pathways are permanent, so are pay, play pathways. So the so it turned out, and then the final part was hope. I, I showed a bunch of videos of patients who had gone to pain-free. So the sequence was awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And the forgiveness part was put, put on by Dr. Fred Leskin out of Stanford, who wrote a book called Forgive for Good. Then the play part was orchestrated by my wife, who's a professional tap dancer, and she wasn't teaching us tap dancing, but she learned this little rhythm called the cup song. And we just started to laugh. So everything was structured. Even the conversations at lunch were around certain topics. People could not talk about their pain, period. They could not, they could not talk about the medical care. Again, all that reinforced pain pathways. But by about the second or third day, people started going to pain-free. Now, I absolutely did not expect that. My idea was to give a nice foundation so in the next few six months they could practice the tools and eventually go to pain-free. But by Friday noon, 90% of the people had gone pain-free. This is after 5, 10, 15, 20 years of pain, you know, multiple body parts, severe pain, high-dose narcotics, you name it, they had gone to pain-free. And when they went back home and back to their triggers, of course, they went back into pain, but they now had the tools to come back out of the pain pathways. So what happened is... I think that people get to relax, de-adrenalize, but basically people heal each other. I mean, I don't think I actually did much other than create the structure and the, obviously the format, but as people relaxed and started sharing and talking to each other, it was unbelievable to watch a transformation in these people's faces, and, and their pain just started to lift. So I would say, just guesstimate, we keep track of most of the people – Probably 75% of them are still pain-free, you know, two, three, and four years later. Wow. But um, it's a format of medicine that we don't really talk about very much. But in my, in my feeling, it's a group settings are ideal to do chronic pain. We also learn some things not to do. You have to, if somebody really is stuck on their pain and not open to engagement, they really have to leave the group. We didn't, we learned that the hard way. Because one person who stays angry and triggered just really doesn't contribute to the group dynamic. And so there, and there's certain things that you just have to sort of watch out for. But by, keep, by keep, keeping people moving forward, giving them the tools, really is one of the most remarkable experiences of my life. I never would have dreamed that. In fact, Esty, I'm just going to tell you her story really quickly, was 32 at the time. She had had horrible neck pain for about four years. 
and she had been through 10 doctors, six of injections, high-dose narcotics. She's working about 60 to 70 hours a week in the marketing world in Manhattan, and she just kept going down the toilet, really just badly spiraling downwards. So when she came into the seminar, the first seminar of the first day, she looked horrible, grabbing her neck, grouchy, reactive, and she gets upset now when I talk about this, but she was really just not very happy. I had very low expectations for anybody, particularly her, and by the third day, she had gone to pain-free, and for her, it was a combination of what we call expressive writing, relaxation, and forgiveness, and we're going to go to her wedding here in about a month, oh, wow. three and a half years later, and she has been pain-free for years. She has changed jobs. She takes maybe one medication every six weeks at the most, and it's just one of the most remarkable experiences of my entire career. Yeah, and wow. She was so miserable and such a complete turnaround, but she's not an unusual story. I see this every week, different variations of that story. So once you really did realize the nervous system and can really relax, and again, it's when people started to laugh, is when people started to go to pain-free. And we're doing this crazy cup song with my wife, and everybody's filming around, cups all over the table, and you know, laughing, talking, whatever, and bam, pain disappeared. Dave, you got to get that cup song on video. Get it to me. I got to put that up on the website. I, I completely get this, that when you can show people that the light at the end of the tunnel isn't a truck, you know, right. it's redemption and hope, then they'll go right. to it. But they won't go to it unless there's a coach there that really helps them understand just like what you did. That is a true life coaching for chronic pain. That is really needed, really needed. You know, that's well, that's my that's my wish for this whole book and website process that I'm doing. I mean, I think I've told you that I want to bring this up into mainstream medicine. I'm actually rephrasing this. This is mainstream medicine. And let's go back to the burnout topic. Is that what burned out physicians is this relentless, seeing patient after patient after patient, you know, prescriptions and physical therapy, etc. And we're we're sort of forced to do that, as you well know, for lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. What actually keeps Physicians and burning out is actually talking to their patients. So I get I'm energized by my patients. That's what keeps me energized is my interaction with my patients, because medicine itself is mind-numbing repetition. You know, I mean, it's back pain, neck pain, back pain, neck pain. Occasionally, something interesting comes along, but there's been nothing more rewarding in my career as a surgeon to get patients better without surgery. And there's no cost, no risk. Their smile comes back. We people get remarried. They go back into the workforce. I've had four people in wheelchairs for over five to ten years come out of the wheelchairs. I've had people on a, over a thousand milligrams of oxycodone a day come off their medications completely, no pain. Um, it's unbelievable, and, and they do it themselves. I'm, I'm just again, I'm giving them a structure. I never fight with them about pain medications because it obviously just simply makes their anxiety worse, makes their pain worse. So again, the book's called Back in Control, and once people understand chronic pain, they simply take control of their own care. Each person does it differently, of course, because everybody's different. But once you understand pain and take charge of your own care, it's just a, it's just a matter of time. I mean, everybody does it completely differently, and the time frames are different. Some people's a matter of weeks. Most people's three or six months. I've had a few, few patients email me a couple of years later and finally pop out of the pain pathways. But once you put these tools into place, it's just the repetition, and your brain really does physically change structure and direction. 
I agree. So it's been a remarkable experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It's like these chronic pain programs of yesterday. They tried to get structure, and we don't really do it. And you brought up uh, in the pre-show that we are we are not forced, <laughs> but we are pushed to see patient after patient after patient. That's the new model. Like it or not, that's what we got to do. But it's not the best right. model. And if we had more time, we could, I know, do, do what I talk about a lot is hit benchmarks at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months. And if you don't get to those benchmarks, what are we doing wrong or what can we do better? And give patients tools in, in enabling behaviors as opposed to disabling behaviors. We tend to sometimes, uh, with our body language, our eyes, our expressions, we discourage patients, and we shouldn't do it. But we do it. We do it. So. But, you, but you know really well, when I give lectures on chronic pain, I give a lecture called Enjoying the Management of Chronic Pain, and I really enjoy it. I mean, it's incredibly rewarding every day. I mean, I don't ever have a day that I just – I mean, I have one or two patients that may not do well, don't respond. I've learned that there's not much I can do. But, I mean, I'm just – I come out of my clinic energized every day. And by – Taking people without hope and giving them hope and watching them come out of this hole is incredibly rewarding. I think physicians have to, as a group, I don't know what the tipping point is, but that's medicine is talking to your patients. I mean, you can't, I mean, the procedures that we're doing are actually been documented not to work, particularly spine surgery. Epidural injections for back pain, as you know, actually don't work long term. Right. Resonomy is going to help a little bit. So essentially, all these procedures are being engaged by actually don't work we do know that the one thing that works by far and away is talking to the patients and i think doctors have got to get that back so if you want the treatment of choice that's what it is yeah well you go back to hippocrates the reason physicians exist at all is because of talking because up until the 1940s we didn't even have antibiotics and right. we had something very strong called a placebo effect uh, whatever you want to, you know, bash placebos, they're very real and they do work. Um, right. And that's the, the positive interaction and the reinforcement that you give patients. For thousands of years, that's what kept people alive and uh, right. got them better. So, right. well, this has been a fantastic interview. And I, uh, once again, appreciate um, you coming on. I, I hope to have you again. P- tell us how to get your book again. I know people are going to want the book. Yeah, it's on Amazon, and it's, it's Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. The website is backincontrol.com, and there's a getting started section that gets you right into it, very simple steps, and it's been very, very consistent. So 90 to 95% of this is a self-directed process. You actually don't need a major pain clinic. Yeah. Well, uh, to, to the listeners, I can tell you, you just heard you heard a philosophy of medicine that needs to be heard Uh it needs to be heard by physicians, it needs to be heard by patients, and it, it just needs to be a mantra to us all. Stop, look, and listen. So thanks again for coming on, and uh, anything else you want to say before we close out? Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I, you know, I'm impressed with your interest and in where you're going with, the, with this whole thing. You're impressed in New Orleans with, with your talk and lecture. And so it's nice to have somebody who thinks the same way I do. I don't – right now, it's not, that's a process I'm working on hard. So no, I was really – encouraged by the whole experience in New Orleans and, and your your work is wonderful. Well, thank you very much. You know, with experience, we when we start off in a career, we want to do, do, do. And then as we get more into life's experience as a physician, we understand sometimes less is better. 
And sometimes, as you said, listening listening is the heel. So thanks again, and I'm going to have you on again. I'll corner you for sure. And the the lectures were fantastic in New Orleans. It was a great town. It was a great meeting. Thanks to all involved at the Southern Pain Society. And have a great day. Do you believe that was one of the best episodes we've had? I do. I thoroughly enjoyed having him on and uh, look forward to having him again. This is the type of episode that I really want your feedback at paininformation.com. Throw me a line or two. Uh, I'll pass it along to uh, Dr. Hanscom as well. And he's going to want this information to enrich his programs, his website, and his book has got to be great. I'm going to order it, and uh, I'll give you probably a whole podcast on that as well. So uh, once again, paininformation.com, and if you could leave us a, uh, some type of a little comment or two on iTunes, it really help us, helps us rank. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you hanging with us. And once again, um, we're we're going through this together. This is a journey, and it's not it's not a quick step or two. You know, it's a it's a commitment. I'm going to live tomorrow better than today. I'll see you soon.